Welcome back, everybody. Uh, hope you're all well. We have got an episode today where we're flying solo again. It's just you and I, Tom. We are once again in the beautiful outdoors in yes. the beautiful Welsh sunshine. Yeah, you don't hear that very often, do you? But yes, we're in a we're in a sort of transitional arrangement between being stuck in our houses and being unable to yet get uh, onto campus. Uh, well, we can get onto campus, we can't get into campus. So we're sitting on some steps in the sun, the traffic's going by, the birds are singing, the wind is blowing, the fire alarms are being tested down in the halls of residence. <laughs> it's just a, a managing your expectations <laughs> yeah. about the ambient noise that you're about to experience yeah. floating in and out. <laughs> lawn mowing, the whole lot is there, but it's all, am- all ambience and atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah, and I feel quite relaxed, um, even with that uh, seagull. <laughs> Making his, res- <laughs> making his presence known and circling us uh, intimidatingly. Have our microphones off us in a minute. Yeah, so it's probably good that we're in a bit of a semi-relaxed state because we're going to talk about something that maybe a bit amorphous is the right word. It's very difficult to pin down. Mm. Um, we're going to be talking about resilience today. And I think it, it's it's one of those words that is perhaps a bit of a buzzword, probably not just in education, and is certainly probably gaining quite a lot of usage in the current climate, which we're really sick of mentioning, yeah. but we are still in the throes of a global pandemic. So resilience, I would imagine, is something that we're either all having to tap into right now or we're trying to build amongst others or within ourselves for whatever may come down the line. And as you say, it's quite a subtle concept. And as with all subtle concepts in education, it can be uh, grabbed by the wrong hands and turned into something uh, a little bit undesirable, I think. I mean, if if you stopped anybody on the street, they would probably all agree that being a teacher uh, involves being quite resilient. You know, when you speak to non-teachers, they all kind of say, oh, I couldn't do that, couldn't deal with X, Y and Z. We all know it's a tough job resilience is not a thing that you can just sort of impose upon people and I'm sure there will be people who listening to this have perhaps had their management try to impose resilience on them where maybe resilience has has turned into something a little bit more akin to compliance perhaps if I'm uh, (laughs) aiming to get us sacked here but you know we've all been there we've all heard that from from people above us haven't we no matter whether we're senior or junior you know you need to be more resilient means do as you're told well as is always the case isn't it these terms can be weaponized can't can't they you know the same way as sort of well-being uh, can be you know (laughs) they exist on a spectrum (laughs) they do let's see that's you'll see you're diplomatic they exist on a spectrum that was far less sackable (laughs) so what we wanted to do was to try and bring some sort of concreteness (laughs) to this term resilience and the kind of major stimulus and the major resource that has helped us do this was a BBC Radio 4 documentary written and presented by Sean Williams called The Science of Resilience, whereby she kind of explores, as the title suggests, The Science of Resilience, um, where she looks to loads of professors, doctors, academics, basically, who are from various different academic fields, such as psychology and biologists, etc., who have tried to help her to make sense of what resilience is and how to foster it. 
And the science of resilience is still available through BBC Sounds and on the BBC website. And we definitely encourage you to listen to the whole thing. We're going to illustrate this discussion with a couple of little snippets from there. You know, doing our best to stay within copyright and all of that. So BBC, if you don't think we've managed that, let us know. But we think we're going to. And we'll, we'll also pull in one or two other things. Also, the, the programme is not specifically education focused. So we're going to kind of draw things back to the education world every now and again just so that we can keep within our context yes and now that you have um, hopefully covered our butts legally <laughs> um, I'm going to quote some of the really great opening questions that Sean Williams poses um, and I'm going to pose them to you Tom actually right oh. off the bat so she says what happens when we're hit by something traumatic how good are we at bouncing back most of us like to think we're resilient and we'd be right. Sometimes, though, our mental strength is really tested. How can we boost our levels of resilience? Or is the way we cope with trauma already written in our DNA? Yeah, and that is something that I suppose in the classroom you sort of have these little micro traumas so you might want to call them on a on a very regular basis and it, and it is important to be able to bounce back I mean thinking about myself I am generally pretty good at bouncing back from things I, I getting back on the horse with classes and things like that when it's not gone well but I suppose like everybody there have probably been times when I've been better at it and times when I've been worse at it and and the more you think about it I suppose the more you realize in hindsight that it was probably because there were quite a lot of things piling up on one another and overlapping which which made it harder to bounce back. So I guess with that question and with Tom's insight there we get a little bit of a sense of what resilience is so there's a sort of in the moment short-term definition of resilience how good we are at bouncing back when faced with something traumatic or a negative circumstance in fact um, one of the professors on the show Professor Michael Pluse says that resilience is doing better than expected in negative conditions. So when someone is exposed to adversity, you would expect them to show some stress reactions and maybe develop mental health problems. The people that don't develop those mental health problems, even though they experience adversity, that's what we would consider as resilience. And about 30 to 50 percent of the differences in people's reactions to negative experiences are predicted by genetic factors. So it's that kind of short term, right? How, how do we cope when the proverbial hits the fan? But then there's also a, a lot of really great stuff in there that we'll hopefully try to elaborate on in this episode about how we kind of work on resilience daily as almost a daily practice, if you will, so that we're kind of building up the reserves of resilience so that if, God forbid, something does happen, something traumatic, then we've got some things up our sleeve, we've got some reserves to call upon, to draw upon, to help us manage and bounce back when when we're experiencing trauma. It's probably fair to say it's the thing that really worries uh, people when they come into the teaching profession on the PGC or other teacher training routes. They often will say to me, you know, oh, I'm a terrible perfectionist. I don't know how I'll bounce back when a class goes badly or a mentor tells me something's gone really, really badly or something like that. And it's, it's interesting to reflect, isn't it, that when you become a teacher, particularly if you come straight out of your degree, where success or failure has mostly been within your own control, you know, barring outside you know, disasters and things like that, you, you, your success or failure depends on how much time you've worked versus how much time you've slept and drank, I suppose. 
when you're a teacher, there's a whole load of stuff that's out of your control uh, to, to some extent. And there are 30 of them and they walk in at the start of the lesson. And sometimes it's going to go wrong. And it's the first time that some people really experience things not working out and it not entirely being in their control. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think it's a really, really great point to trainee teachers but also to any colleagues um, university colleagues school-based colleagues working with those teachers I mean I'm thinking about learner drivers right now (laughs) just go with it we often sort of get or I know I do frustrated with learner drivers because we can't remember easily what it was like to feel completely out of your depth unexpectedly so and I think you're, you're right there Tom a lot of our teacher trainees might come onto the program actually having experienced really good levels of resilience in their former lives um, or be it academic or working lives and might see themselves as you know pretty resilient people but might find themselves in circumstances that we could maybe mildly characterize as traumatic <laughs> um, and and they really need those working with them to be sympathetic and to empathize with what it feels like and what it felt like to be back in that situation where you really aren't sure uh, how you're going to manage that situation. Yeah, one of the one of the really intriguing ideas put forward in this radio program, this documentary, was the suggestion or the question, I suppose, as to whether resilience is kind of dictated by our genes or whether it's dictated by circumstances and events or whether it's a, a sort of subtle mix of the two. And I suppose both of those things have their their kind of attractions, don't they? If, if it's dictated by your genes, then it's a little bit out of your control and you can't worry about it. If, if it's dictated by circumstances, then maybe you can change. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And this is something that we, we found another source on this. In fact, I, I can't uh, take credit for this. This is something that a colleague, Fiona Diffie, found. She put together a session for our university teacher trainees about resilience and there's a very nice short video coming from Harvard University called In Brief The Science of Resilience and it talks about the genes as being the kind of what we call the fulcrum (laughs) um, or the, the kind of middle point of this seesaw of resilience the easy way of thinking about resilience is like a, a scale um, with a fulcrum in the, in the middle of it. And there are things on both sides of that scale, experiences of both bad things or good things. Our genes shape where the fulcrum is positioned at the start. There are certain genes that make a child more sensitive to the effects of maltreatment or parental neglect or witnessing violence. The fulcrum may start out kind of more towards one side or more towards the other side, and that's going to make a big difference in terms of how much these subsequent events affect things positively or negatively. Science tells us that experience moves the fulcrum for better or for worse. Even though we are born with genes, genes will respond differently to certain environmental situations as opposed to others. What the genes are actually doing are turning up or turning down the expression of chemicals in circuits in the brain. 
and the circuitry in the entire body that, that govern our responses to stress, to anxiety, to depressive symptoms. When positive experiences accumulate and children learn coping skills that help them to manage stress, the fulcrum can slide so the scale tilts toward positive outcomes more easily. That's what resilience is all about. The most compelling one for me, and I've heard about this, and Tom, you, you uh, also heard about this with me, in a lecture that we received about adverse childhood experiences and the research that comes out of that. The fulcrum can be moved by influential adult role models, figures in a child's life. So even if those children are growing up in an environment where perhaps their parents maybe, I'm going to say it, is maybe controversial, um, the parents are not helping them build up their stores of resilience. In fact, might be you know, having an adverse, or com- compounding the adverse effect of, of trauma on the child. When they come into school, they interact with multiple adults who are majorly influential on their ability to kind of foster their own sense of resilience, but also to create positive outcomes and help them experience positive outcomes that can move that fulcrum um, for the better. And actually, let's be honest, an awful lot of people come into the profession wanting to be exactly that person, don't they? We hear an awful lot of that at interview. Which is great to hear, you know, a lot of people come into the profession uh, wanting to be that influential role model. It's not as easy as it looks, I suppose, and that's not the whole story when it's being a teacher. But but it's, it's nice to think that so many people come into the profession wanting to do that. Another interesting thing I heard in the documentary was was this uh, this piece of research going as kind of qualitative research, wasn't it? Really, it was it was about kind of describing things, and they had the presenter listing traumatic events, I suppose, uh, finding out what had been going on uh, in her life, and also, crucially, listing who and whether uh, and to what extent she was able to share those with other people that she trusted. Yeah, that was really interesting, and it was actually a really crucial part of the survey. Now, what are we looking at here? What is it likely to show? It's really the number of stresses and the ones that were contextually the most severe. The resilience is for people who can endure it and come out of it still coping, still managing. Is this test then looking at who you've got in your life if you do have a major event? Absolutely. So right at the beginning of the test, we say who's close to you and then who do you confide in when you have a problem? And then when it gets to one of the problems that arises, we say, and did you talk to this person? Because what we find is that people tend to say, oh, yes, I've got lots of people I can talk to. But when you actually ask them what they said and when, they say, well, I couldn't really because they had their own problems. Or, well, it was my mum. I couldn't really tell her about that. Mm. And so in the end, people don't always have as much support as perhaps they think they've got. So this is um, research that's coming out of Middlesex University. Professor Antonio Tony um, Bufulco, who's a professor in psychology, and the crucial bit that Tom's just mentioned is how important it is to confide in the person that makes a real difference in increasing your resilience in that moment of trauma. So Sean Williams, as Tom just described, names the person or people who she would be most likely to confide in. And then the crucial question later on is, 
did you confide in that person when you were experiencing trauma? And as Sean says in the documentary, for her, she um, unfortunately had breast cancer and had to have a very fast double mastectomy. And, you know, this was a real moment, I think, in, in the documentary, um, very brave of her to kind of include it in the edit, where the professor asks her, and did you? Did you, did you confide in that person? And she says, no, I didn't want to put upon them. And this, for me, was a real theme that came through in the documentary that Tom and I have, are going to talk a bit more about now, which is, are we a bit buttoned up as a nation? And are we perhaps less likely as a nation to confide in that significant other or others about what it is that's really, really stressing us? And this is a really interesting question, I think, from two directions, isn't it? And I'm certainly thinking about particularly difficult times I've experienced where, yeah, guilty as charged, I am very, very bad at going and having those conversations. I think it's partly just what I'm like. But there's also a culture in education, isn't there, that we're all terribly busy and we all try not to kind of add to one another's workloads. And that's kind of a thing, I think, in education. So as the sort of person with the problem, the issue, the trauma, I suppose we could call it. Um, although trauma exists on a spectrum, I think, you know, double mastectomy ends at one end of it, perhaps. And some of the stuff that would happen to us in the classroom would be a little bit different. But as the person with the trauma, how are we speaking to people? But then I suppose with your mentor hat on, as, as someone who's looking after a new member of the profession, with your teacher hat on, if you're talking to pupils, you know, with that, with that receiving hat on, do you create the conditions where it's easy to do? And I'm sure we've all been in situations where something bad's going on and people are saying, oh, you know, call me anytime, come and see me if, if you need anything. And you don't, do you? Mm. <laughs> because you don't want to do, do that put upon them. So perhaps as mentors, as people who look after people, we maybe need to think a little bit about whether that's enough. Mm. Uh, I, I would agree with that. And I, and I think, you know, to, to put some responsibility on the shoulders of the student teachers, Tom made a great point when we were prepping for this that links with um, some advice that came through from Kat Kirkland to NQTs, it was to newly qualified teachers, to make sure that they kind of create a group of confidants, of professional colleagues who they can confide in, who they can make sense of things with, who they can build relationships with. Obviously, you know, you're not going to build the trust overnight so it's going to be a bit of a long game but you know on our program we particularly in our new model we ensure that student teachers go into their school placements in a group so there could be sort of up to sort of six of them going on on one placement together and there's not necessarily a ready-made bubble of confidants there it's something that you've got to work at so you know what Tom mentioned to the mentors there is actually going to be equally as important for you as student teachers how regularly are you creating opportunities for others to express things that maybe they're struggling with and to you know help them help them to voice those how good are you at listening and I guess at the formal end of this on an individual level, we've tried to bake things into the design of our programme that help to encourage reflection. Now, reflection, again, could be a real buzzword in teacher training and in education, because if it's not helping you to improve, then, then why are we doing it? And there are various models out there that we use on the programme that if you have no idea how to reflect, they give you a bit of a step-by-step -step guide. But actually, when we tether that with 
what we're talking about here and resilience and getting into these kind of almost mindful practices of making sense of things and building up those resilience reserves for when something really really bad you know hopefully it doesn't but when something really challenging does happen then actually those reflective models move from a position of you know okay I'm doing this because I have to because it's part of the program and my tutors are telling me to it might turn into something that becomes part of your your daily practice and there was an interesting section in the documentary where they were working with some really young children weren't they getting them to do this getting them to talk about how they might feel under certain circumstances, you know, that, that hadn't necessarily happened to them yet and really discussing it. And they did find that those those young people were able to do it really well and hopefully that that would, would follow them through their lives. There was an interesting point in there, wasn't there, that they, they understood that not everybody in the room is going to react to a certain thing in the same way. Yes, that was a really important bit, actually. And, and I think we'll play you a section of the bit where they go into schools where this programme is being roll, rolled out. Actually, just as a side point, you might want to have a look at uh, a programme called Bounce Forward, which is a resilience programme uh, for education that grew out of um, the programme that is being showcased in the documentary. But yes, Tom, you're absolutely right. They're talking to a group of pupils going through this training about being told off by a teacher in the classroom and they through questioning um, through these various activities just try and uncover the different perspectives on that one incident just to help prove to pupils that they might be perceiving that happening that event in one way but and thinking that others are perceiving it the same or in a sort of adversarial way but actually that might not be the case because they're quite confidently talking about those different perspectives and this is actually something else that is remarked upon in that moment in the documentary which is these children are confidently talking about their emotions and how they manage them and I think it's Sean Williams who remarks again that are we used to talking so freely and confidently about these things and should we therefore be creating a space in schools early on where children can talk about resilience and their emotions and how they deal with these moments you know as a means to kind of permeating all aspects of, of education. We're teaching them about not jumping to conclusions, which I think is a very common thing with students, perhaps sometimes being too pessimistic. That member of staff doesn't like me because I got told off. So it's giving them all of those skills that they can then take not only to lessons, but I think outside of school as well. Okay. Right, I'm going to turn it a little bit to something that might happen in school. You are being told off in front of the whole of the class by your teacher, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to think about, will everybody be feeling exactly the same in that situation? Okay, so what we're going to do... Matt, has it made any difference to results, to their academic achievement? Uh, absolutely. If you look at our last three years' worth of results, they've gone up year on year and our students are becoming certainly more confident people over time and we are expecting to see improved results over the next two years as well. This is certainly contributing to that, for sure. Currently, of course, we've got Year 11 going through their GCSEs and a number of them have been and spoken to me about how they're feeling and I think the fact that they are able to say I am feeling a little under pressure can you give me strategies to get myself on the right track and feeling comfortable and confident with myself again it has been as a teacher to see these young people develop a real 
pleasure. And it's interesting to think then, bringing it back to what we do with student teachers and the reflective models that you talked about earlier. You know, they can look really academic, the reflective models. They've got references and they've got papers connected with them and all of this kind of thing. And it encourages the students to bring in literature from the education world. But in, in a lot of them, there is a box that basically says, how did you feel? And I remember when I first saw those reflective models being almost quite surprised to see that I don't even know why I was surprised I suppose but it's kind of weird isn't it as a feeling that we're we're teachers and we're we're academics and all of this that there's a box that basically says how did you feel yeah yeah absolutely and uh, and and this again links with a lot of what the, the scientists are saying about this kind of daily practice that can help longer term I think this is Oxford University this is somebody called Dr David Clark who says that um, it, talk, it talks about the kind of big problem with, with drug treatments of things like depression, stress and anxiety, is that actually by prescribing drug treatments for these issues is that you don't learn anything new that teaches you about how to cope with future trauma. So, um, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it might be a sticking plaster, but plaster falls off and how do you deal with it? again down the line so this person talks about how psychological treatments teach you new skills for overcoming current emotional problems to set you up for the future and naming those things is is one of those such strategies you know i'm, I'm feeling like this right now but this is an emotion that's on a spectrum that could quite easily tip into a more positive territory in a few hours and the important thing is to understand that other people might be feeling something entirely different to you and that's completely okay. And also the fact that they may not know how you feel. It's quite interesting, actually, a, a bit of a confession here from me, maybe at this point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your advice and open Ooh. up a little bit on the podcast and say, <laughs> I, I remember saying to a colleague that started on the same day as me several years uh, after we'd started, you know, do you know, for the whole of the first year working here on the PGC, I genuinely thought I was completely useless at this job and the only honourable course was to resign at the end of my first year. And she said, I had no idea. You looked so confident. And, and you know, and I'd spent the whole year, I guess we probably all do this in new jobs, don't we? Spending the first time thinking I've made a terrible mistake. I'm not up to this. I can't do this job. And I genuinely did think that in my first year here working on the PGC, that actually I was going to have to come clean and, and bail out because I wasn't good enough. And nobody knew because clearly I'm probably quite good at that teacher thing of looking confident. And and so actually just explaining this stuff to other people can sometimes be really helpful because you may think it's obvious and it really isn't. Uh, so there's a, there's another strategy there that that this whole idea of in, how interdependent we are as humans and also obviously in our profession is is important. And you know whilst it might feel quite exposing, particularly if you're a leader, if yeah, you're in educational yeah. leadership expressing how you're feeling and being honest even when you put on that maybe you know that that facade that persona I think is quite welcome from colleagues who who might sort of see the way that you're presenting yourselves and this is where reflexivity comes into this quite helpfully being reflexive is about kind of acknowledging that you're you're perceiving the world 
through a particular lens and you are perhaps putting your own kind of slant on yourself and who you are and that, and that persona and how and how others are reading you so it's important to be reflective but also reflexive so looking back on what happened in a lesson and trying to probe it from multiple lenses well how does that look from the perspective of my pupils how does that look from the perspective of maybe another adult that's in the room how would have that have looked from me on a different day um so just kind of adopting those different stances can actually help us to gain some new perspective and to again sort of build that sense of of resilience this actually makes me think about something that i've maybe mentioned on the podcast before tom but I'm going to out myself here and say that I was once teaching and I I had a real fear of of silence um, from my pupils or from my students. And um, I I told Tom about this and I said, you know, oh, they're silent. They don't, they're not getting what they need. They they don't understand the question. It's my fault. Why, Why did I not put it in a better way? And he said in his typical tom way really kindly (laughs) what's my typical tom way (laughs) really kindly but actually just get right to the bleeding heart of it maybe they're thinking because they respect the question and they respect it so much that they are they're just taking the time to really consider their answer before they before they say it before they voice it out loud and um, live a long uncomfortable silence (laughs) me and that was really useful so again interdependence really useful to have another um, perspective on the situation again this is where the mentor um, becomes an ever important prompter of that reflexive and reflective practice post-observation perhaps Perhaps it's time for a, another name check of a resource that we mentioned absolutely ages ago as well, because we're, we're saying to everybody it's time to name those emotions, but that can be very hard to do. I was just thinking when I, when I was talking earlier about having the box that says, how do you feel? I think it's probably the hardest box to fill in, actually, because it's, it's really hard to describe it. And we did mention this previously um, ages and ages ago in an episode, which is the, the wheel of emotions, Plutchik's wheel of emotions. I know you're you're big into the mood elevator, aren't you? But uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite a devotee of the wheel of emotions. It, you just, just Google wheel of emotions and you'll find it. Because what I like about it is that it, it sort of talks about the different intensities of a particular kind of feeling or emotion. And, and it sort of shows how how they kind of change in that dimension of intensity, as well as going around this wheel to kind of different things. So you've got kind of loving ones at one end and a sort of sadness and joy and anger and fear and all of those. And it really illustrates in a brilliant visual way how if you kind of take something that's potentially quite a positive thing a little bit too far, it becomes something quite negative. You know, an obvious example we could think of is if somebody's very sort of very conscientious and very sort of diligent and then they take it a little bit too far and they get a little bit obsessive and, you know, that's that's often a bit of a problem when we're in the teaching world because the job's never done. And all of those emotions, no matter how positive they can be in a kind of moderated form, can turn into something a little bit dangerous or a little bit self-destructive if you take them too far. And so that that wheel of emotions, first of all, it can be a great kind of uh, a great kind of vocabulary finder, I suppose. But it can also be a great way to kind of trace where something perhaps tipped into something a little bit a little bit unhelpful. Yes, yes, absolutely. So a, a big theme that's coming out of all of this is looking to self, but also acknowledging that we are really important at helping one another in developing um, resilience and in helping our pupils to develop their resilience. 
Something that also comes through um, from someone called Professor Richard Layard, who is a labour economist who worked for most of his life on how to reduce unemployment and inequality. But one of his kind of real interests is um, work on happiness and how better mental health can improve our social and economic life. He makes some really interesting points um, that speak to our times about how interested in ourselves we've become through things like social media and you know how we're putting ourselves out there on things like Instagram and we've become very much interested in 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 working on ourselves so he talks about combating self-absorption in in education he talks about sort of competitive environments as actually not being particularly helpful and what we ought to be doing is focusing on classroom approaches that help and encourage pupils to focus on others and to be there for others and have roles strategically that are placing them in a position of support um, for their peers and maybe for other adults uh, in, that they're interacting with in schools. So that's another strategy to consider when thinking about um, fostering resilience with our learners. There's another nice parallel there actually isn't there about being a little bit discriminating about getting your validation from people I suppose you stick things on social media random people like it or or don't like it uh, you, you can potentially get a little bit over interested in perhaps the quantity of the validation rather than the quality of the validation I'm just thinking with a wry smile now about a, an article I wrote for the conversation which is a, a sort of academic bloggy type thing I suppose sort of lightweight academic-y thing and um, got absolutely pilloried for my trouble I mean I was I was deliberately a little bit controversial but there is a there is a blog out there uh, which I'm not going to name which links <laughs> to my article and at the bottom of the page is an absolute slew of vitriol about me and I'm pleased to say I'm proud to say I don't care because I don't know any of those people and and their opinion doesn't matter to me but it's it's really important I suppose that you you think about well, who is it worth kind of pleasing? Who is it worth getting respect from? Is it about the quantity of people that you please or, or is it about which people you please and the quality uh, of that? And and the social media kind of perspective there is quite interesting when we're looking at that, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, you've, you've... I must send you that page. <laughs> yeah, I, well, no, I, I, I remember you telling me about it at the time and, yeah. uh, and I think you're right. I think there's a lot of that, particularly on Twitter. <laughs> there can be a lot of it. And I guess the question you ask yourself is, is, is this the platform to have this debate and am I going to get a quality debate from this and as Tom said you know whose whose opinion do I really value and and who could I speak to about this who might help me gain some perspective do you want to talk after this Tom no it's fine like I said I don't care (laughs) (laughs) now um we're getting we're getting close to the end of this deep discussion now and hopefully there's been some tangible takeaways from it but a, a really nice takeaway that comes at the end of this documentary which is testimony to the great work of Sean Williams actually she she starts off at at the start of the program where she leaves us hanging as to whether or not she's going to get this gene test which will give the outcome as to whether she is sort of genetically predisposed to be able to cope with trauma or not cope with trauma she decides at the end to leave that gene test in a bag because she makes the very, very important final point that part of resilience is about living with uncertainty and being comfortable with the notion that things might change and the proverbial might hit the fan. 
on a daily basis when you're starting out perhaps or wherever you are in your career so that knowledge that things are never fixed is important and teaching is about living with uncertainty isn't it on a day-to-day basis and and on a slightly longer term I mean it's really good to sort of stop and reflect back on things that have happened um, to you and I can certainly think of you know really bad things that might have happened to me where I've dealt with it really well and bounced back I can think of really bad things that have happened where I've been a complete disaster area afterwards and you can usually with the benefit of hindsight realize that it was because there was more than one thing going on at the time perhaps that had just weakened your your resources a little bit and and meant that you weren't able to cope with them as well as as you could and you know that's that's sort of no fault really that was out of of your control or my control um, at the time so having that sort of backward looking reflection is really important and and not perhaps assuming that your genes or the way you are or things out of your control are, are the whole story and there's nothing you can do about it yeah and I guess th- that that notion of uncertainty uncertainty could be you know uncertainty about negative things happening but it also could be uncertainty and hopeful things could happen. So having hope for the future is something that's also mentioned in that documentary. And uh, imagining a better future is another really good sort of resilience practice that you can consider on a daily basis that might be useful to you. So there we are. Might have been a bit rambly. Hopefully we've got some takeaways from that. You know, there are no quick answers with this. And I think if we were to offer you quick answers, then you would be well within your rights to uh, unsubscribe from our podcast. You'd probably be getting employed to deliver them by uh, managers, though. (laughs) (laughs) They are out there, by the way. In my research for this, there are some companies who have developed, you know, apps for resilience etc i'm always a little bit dubious of those kind of quick fix opportunities maybe i'm being a bit cruel but um, i don't think there's a there's a quick or easy way to developing your resilience but it's something that perhaps a little bit every day could could be useful so let's end with the way we normally do with our three regular short slots and uh, we'll start with well-being and me because this is connected with what we've just been talking about. My well-being tip as the seagulls circle ominously over my head about to reduce my well-being is uh, related to my time in school to some extent and, and also related to what we've been talking about which is just to think for a minute about the fact that unless you are a student teacher on your very 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 first day in which case you've got a peer group that you can bond with, as, as we were saying earlier. You are probably in a position that there's somebody who's perhaps a little bit further down the invisible pecking order than you. So even if you're an NQT, you know, there's student teachers in the building. If you've been knocking around three or four years, there's going to be an NQT and so on and so on. Just kind of take a moment to recognise your your status. You may not feel it, but you have got some. You know, you know the ropes a little bit more than somebody else. And start laying the groundwork for making it possible to have those resilience conversations that we were talking about earlier. Now, as we said, these conversations are not going to just happen by themselves. They're not going to spring into life fully formed. You've got to actually do the groundwork and get to trust one another first and one of the things I certainly used to do when I was in the staff room at school, when I shared a little staff room, was to make sure I kind of broke the ice and, and you know, got to know the newer members of staff because you never knew when one of them was going to be having a rough time about something. 
And it was often something that could be very easily solved by somebody who'd been floating around the place a little bit longer. I distinctly remember, I shall tell you a funny story now, I distinctly remember having a really new member of staff who had been told she was going on a trip to Big Pit with me and couldn't admit to the senior member of staff organising the trip that she was claustrophobic and terrified of the idea of going down in the lift into the coal mine and couldn't go and tell her. And of course, the solution was simple, which was that I took my group in the coal mine and then came up and took her group into the coal mine. And, you know, she's supervised, you know, we just changed the rotor around, but she was too frightened to go and say. So I just we just went off down and told her together that this lady was not going down this coal mine because she was going to die of fright. But silly little things like that, you can really have a big impact on other people if you just understand the fact that you potentially have a little bit more status just through through knocking around the place and you start off by getting to know them and having cups of tea with them and just making friends with them so that when they need you you're going to be there really good advice um and i guess i'm going to attempt to segue here but um as louis through often says on his uh, most recent podcast grounded it might be a little bit of a a tenuous link crashing of gears is it yeah um so ultimately what you're talking about at the end there is that you're kind of in a position of privilege and you need to be aware of that and use that to positive ends you know you know a bit more about the ropes and you're going to do some hard work at, at building relationships to help potentially the newcomers to settle in and and with building their resilience in in the long run privilege is a word that is very very dominant in the media and i would imagine many household conversations conversations and and marches uh you know obviously talking about the black lives matter movement but also inclusion more generally and I guess, speaking honestly, I am currently sort of trying to work through, understand my own privileges and understand and better inform myself and become a better ally to those who have experienced any form of racial discrimination or sexual discrimination or any discrimination and also to think about how I work with my student teachers in the future in really considering their practice and how inclusive it is. So that was a very long rambling way of introducing my uh, something interesting that I have been reading of late which links with Black Lives Matter movement but is maybe a little bit controversial in that the author Rennie Edo Lodge wrote uh, or had an interview um, with I believe The Guardian recently about how successful almost overnight um, it topped the charts of the Amazon top rankings for her book Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I've started reading that book um, and I guess it's led me to think more deeply about the steps that a person in a position of of privilege as a white woman, um, how I can get to understand new perspectives more deeply. obviously this one book isn't going to tell me everything that I need to know and it's not the end of the end of the story but it has opened up um, a dialogue in my own mind and also with my kind of nearest and dearest and with my colleagues about discrimination unconscious bias um, and what 
we can do um, to combat it within our own lives and with within our own kind of professional spheres. So that led on to a conversation with you, Tom, actually, about a piece that, that you'd read. So you might want to read um, uh, that book or start reading it, as I have. But there are many other books as well out there um, sort of in that vein. Yeah, just kind of expanding on that a bit. I know that we want to make a strand of episodes about kind of ethics broadly to kind of encompass a lot of the big issues that are coming up at the moment. And as two very much white presenters, I know we, we want to really get to grips with all of the issues raised by the Black Lives Matter protests and all of those questions that have been raised. I mean, we're going to definitely work on that. There was a very interesting poem that went up uh, on Twitter and, and Facebook uh, in the music world recently by Nate Holder that stirred up an awful lot of interesting and quite angry conversations, uh, you know, about whether the way that the music curriculum is currently delivered could be described as racist i mean just to quote one but you know if i were a racist i'd teach african drumming because of course africa is a country well that's interesting one you know we can we can go on about that at length perhaps in a future episode um i was quite taken with an article by uh, a very controversial writer uh, lionel shriver who who wrote in the spectator and she's very very provocative you know she's really stirred up a lot of things and she was questioning the sort of auto guilt for want of a better word <laughs> the auto guilt kind of responses that we saw um when black lives matter uh, kind of really came to prominence uh, in recent months in which perhaps you know big corporations put up very glossy self-denunciations on social media and you know questioning some of the kind of the the motivations for doing that and I, I certainly was quite uncomfortable with some of the things that I saw being posted where people were almost kind of you know apologizing in a very knee-jerk way and, and just trying to make themselves feel better and dare I say it garner some of those those likes that we were talking about earlier I mean it's it's a very very difficult and sensitive one and I think we we need to recognize that there are no easy answers there are no quick black backgrounded nicely fonted instagram posts that are going to make everything right um and that's why we're going to explore that hopefully in a lot more detail later in the year yes totally agree um so yes yeah, two suggestions there that we'll um obviously reiterate uh, in the notes for this episode so the final short slot is a something to try and it's one from me this week and actually this is based on a Desert Island Discs episode. For those regular listeners you'll probably know that I am an avid fan of Desert Island Discs and this particular interview was with Sinead Burke who is a self-termed little person. So Sinead is formerly uh, a teacher as well she now works in the fashion industry I believe she's also done a TED talk but she talks in that Desert Island Discs episode about her experiences growing up and working as a little person and all of the challenges that that has brought her and all of the uh, the work that she has done to try to uh, support the inclusion and and the support for people like her 
and how indeed society views people like her and provides for people like her. But obviously the most influential role that she talks about um, in that episode is her role as a teacher. She's got some great things to say actually about some of the questions that she was asked by some of her pupils when she started teaching. Um, she remembers and regales us with a memory of one, one child asking her, you know, why are you so small? And she promptly replies, or why are you that tall? And the child responds, because I was born that way. And Sinead promptly responds, well, so was I. So, you know, she's, there's a lot of really great stuff in that episode. But one thing to try that she actually used to do as a teacher with her, her pupils was as a reward. She's, she's a real lover of music, is Sinead. And she's got a great playlist on her Desert Island Discs episode. She used to allow her pupils, one pupil at the end of the week, um, who for, for some reason deserved some praise, they would get to select a song to be played on, on a, a Bluetooth speaker for the class to um, rock out to. And she said for a while there was a lot of kind of the typical sort of pop stuff. But one day one pupil came in and said that he wanted The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. So she promptly put that on and a lot of the kids in the class said, oh, you know, we, we, they complained, they didn't, didn't really enjoy it. But the pupil turned around and said, well, no, this is important. This is, this is my dad's favourite song. So then Sinead says that all of a sudden the requests coming in, um, she's she's Irish, um, Sinead, and she said, you know, they had uh, requests such as the Dubliners, key sort of Irish artists coming in, obviously being suggested by parents. And she said what this did was it created a really authentic, unforced, but lovely home link between parents and carers and the kids and school. So maybe something to try as a as a reward um, with your pupils just to get an insight but also to make links with home music and identity oh very important (laughs) (laughs) so there you have it Uh, hopefully quite a quite a full episode for you there lots to chew over loads of gifts we'll make sure that uh, everything we've talked about is linked in the notes for this episode so if you want to go and find them just go and look at the notes and click on the links and in the meantime stay well and uh, we'll speak to you again in two weeks time that was emma and tom's pgc podcast presented by emma thayer and tom breeze today's episode was brought to you by a dizzying array of authors academics and presenters whose work we've shamelessly mashed up into what we hope will be useful stimulus for reflection and discussion thanks to all of them and you can find the links in the show notes for this episode we're off to hide somewhere far away from the vicious cardiff seagulls until next time take care and enjoy teaching